Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back, everyone. The history shouldn't be a mystery for yet another semester of delving into the historical past of these important European figures. Today, like I said last episode of over a month ago, we will be going back to where we started with Mehmed II, the man who conquered Constantinople, most of the Balkans, and saw the consolidation of the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans, Anatolia, and the centralization of his regime. So let's get right into it since we are unlimited time here. One. So Mehmed II was born on the 30th of March, 1432, in Adirn, the then capital city of the Ottoman state, to his father, Sultan Murad II. When Mehmed II was 11 years old, he was sent to Am Amazia, a city in central Anatolia, to govern and thus gain experience for when he would come to rule the Ottoman Empire, as per the custom of Ottoman rulers before his time. His father, Sultan Murad II, also sent a number of teachers for him to study under, as is per normal. This was mainly an Islamic-centered education, which had a great impact in molding Mehmed's mindset and reinforced his Islamic beliefs. He was influenced in his practice of Islamic epistemology by practitioners of science, particularly by his mentor Mullah Gorani, and he followed their approach in regards to that. The influence of Akshama al-Sadin in Mehmed's life became predominant from a young age, especially in the imperative of fulfilling his Islamic duty to overthrow the Byzantine Empire by conquering Constantinople, something which he would come to do. But Mehmed II would come to rule at a young age. After his father, Murad II, made peace with the Karamanids in Anatolia in, the, in August of 1444, he abdicated his throne to then 12-year-old Mehmed II. In Mehmed's first reign, as he would come back later on, he defeated the crusade led by John Hunyadi, who we've discussed previously, after the Hungarian incursion into his country, which broke the conditions of the truce of the Peace of Sigged. Cardinal Julian Cesarani, the representative of the Pope, had convinced the King of Hungary at the time that breaking the truce with the Muslims was not a betrayal. And at this time, Mehmed II had asked his father, Murad II, to reclaim the throne, hence why there was that second reign. But Murad II would actually refuse this initially. Angry at his father, who had long since retired to a complicated life in southwestern Anatolia, Mehmed II would write to him, If you are the Sultan, come and lead your armies. If I am the Sultan, I hereby order you to come and lead my armies. It was only after receiving this letter that Murad II would come back to become Sultan and lead the Ottoman Empire and win the Battle of Varna in 1444, which ended that crusade and resulted in the death of the King of Hungary. Murad II's return to the throne was also forced by Cardinal Ali Pasa, the Grand Vizier at the time, who was not found on Mehmed II's rule because of Mehmed II's influential royal teacher, Aksham Sadin, who had a rivalry with the Grand Vizier at that time. So upon the start of his second reign, Mehmed II, when in 14. 51. Mehmed II devoted himself to strengthening the Ottoman navy and made preparations for an attack on Constantinople, a long-sought goal of the Ottoman Empire. In the narrowest Bosphorus Straits, the fortress Anadoliciar had been built by his great-grandfather Bayezid I on the Asian side. Mehmed had erected an even stronger fortress called the Rumeliciari on the European side, and thus gained complete control of the strait. Having completed the fortresses, Mehmed II then proceeded to levy a toll on all ships passing within the reach of their cannons. 
Now, since we've already discussed the Battle of and Siege of Constantinople previously in the first episode of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, so if you want to hear more about that, I go advise you check that out on SoundCloud along with our other episodes about John Hunyadi and Skanderberg, who we will be also talking about in this episode. So to give a brief overview, though, just as a reminder of what happened in this battle, in 1453, Memnon would commence the Siege of Constantinople with an army between 80 and 200,000 men, an artillery train of 70 large field pieces, and about a navy of 320 vessels, the bulk mostly being transports and store ships for supply and logistical reasons. The city was surrounded by sea and land. The fleet at the entrance of the Bosphorus stretched from shore to shore in the form of a crescent. The intercept to repel any insistence for, for Constantinople. Constantinople from the sea, mainly the threat of the Venetians. In early April, the siege of Constantinople began. At first, the city's walls held off from the Turks, even though Mehmed's army used the new bombard designed by Orban, a giant cam cannon similar to the Dardanelles gun. The harbor of the Golden Horn was blocked off by a boom chain and defended by 28 warships. However, Constantinople would eventually fall on the 29th of May of that year, following a 57-day-long siege. After this conquest, Mehmed would move the Ottoman capital from Adrianople to Constantinople. After the conquest of Constantinople, Mehmed was finally able to claim the title of Caesar of the Roman Empire, based on the assertion that Constantinople had been the seat and capital of the Roman Empire since 330 AD, and whoever possessed the imperial capital was the ruler of the empire. The contemporary scholar George of Trebizond supported this claim, but the claim was not recognized by the Catholic Church and most of, if not all, of Europe, but was actually recognized by the Eastern Orthodox Church. Mehmed installed Gennadius Scolarius, a staunch antagonist of the West, as the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, New Rome, with all ceremonial elements, uh, ethnarch, status, and rights of property that made him the second largest landlord in said empire by the sultan himself in 1454. And in turn, Gennadius II recognized Mehmed II as the successor to the throne, allowing him to claim the title of Caesar from that standpoint. Mehmed also had a blood lineage to the Byzantine imperial family, as his predecessor, Sultan Orhan I, had married a Byzantine princess, and Mehmed claimed descent from John Tzalipis Komnenos. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. We've just got finished discussing the early and first reign of Mehmed II, followed by his early steps in the conquest of Constantinople. But Mehmed the Con II isn't known as Mehmed the Conqueror for nothing. He went on to conquer even more after Constantinople. Mehmed II's first campaigns after Constantinople were in the direction of Serbia, which had been at the time an Ottoman vassal since the Battle of Kosovo in 1389. The Ottoman ruler had a connection with the Serbian despot, one of Murad II's wives was Mera Brankovic, the daughter of the Serbian despot at the time, and he used that to claim some Serbian lands. But Dorad Brankovic had recently made an alliance with John Hunyadi and the Hungarians, and had paid the tribute irregularly, which may have been an important consideration in Mehmed's decision to actually invade Serbia. When Serbia refused the demands to pay these tributes and cede these lands, an Ottoman army had been sent up from Idurn towards Serbia in 1454, besieging Smedervo as well as Novo Brodo, the most important Serbian metal mining and smelting center within the, in the uh, kingdom. The Ottoman army advanced as far as Belgrade, where it attempted but failed to conquer the city from John Hanyadi at the siege of Belgrade on the 14th of July, 1456. A period of relative peace ensued in the region until the fall of Belgrade in 1521, during the reign of Mehmed's great-grandson, Suleiman the Magnificent. 
The Sultan would then retreat from this defeat back to, back to the city of Edirne, and Dordad Brankovic regained possession of some parts of Serbia. However, he would die in the following year, and Serbian independence from there on would only last two more years until the Ottoman Empire formally annexed his lands. Once again, Mehmed II II then went on to conquer even more after Serbia. From 1458 to 1460, we saw the conquest of Moria. The despot of Moria had boarded the southern Ottoman Balkans in in basically southern Greece. The Ottomans had already invaded the region under Murad II, destroying the Byzantine defenses. We saw this when uh, Constantine XI Paleologos was the ruler of the region at the time before he eventually became the Byzantine emperor. The Ottomans had invaded the region, destroying the Byzantine defenses, especially the Hexamillion Wall, at the Isthmus of Corinth in 1446, before the final siege of Constantinople. The despots, Demetrios Paleologos and Thomas Paleologos, brothers of the last emperor, failed to send any aid to Constantinople, Constantinople during the siege and were really the last remnants or holdouts of the royal dynasty at the time. At this time, a number of influential Muriel Greeks, and Albanians made a private peace with Mehmed II when he invaded the kingdom. After more years of incompetent rule by these two despots, their failure to pay their annual tribute to the sultan, and finally their own revolt against Ottoman rule, Mehmed entered Moria in May of 1460, where Demetrios ended up a prisoner of the Ottomans and his younger brother Thomas would flee. By the end of the summer, the Ottomans had achieved the submission of virtually all cities formerly possessed by the Greeks. After his conquest of Moria, Mehmed the Conqueror once again conquered. From 1460 to 1461, you saw the conquest of the Black Sea coast, primarily against the city-state of then Genoa. The emperors of Trebizond formed alliances through royal marriages with various Muslim rulers at the time. John IV of Trebizond married his daughter to the son of his brother, Uzan Hassan, the Khan of Akkolianu, in return for his promise to defend the state. He also secured promises of support from the Turkish bays of Sinope and Karamania and from the kings and princes of Georgia. The Ottomans were motivated to capture Trebizond, though, to get an annual tribute. In the time of Murad II, they first attempted to take the capital in 1442, but this was made impossible to, due to a high surf, which would come to repulse the landing attempts. While Mehmed II was away laying siege in 1456 to Belgrade, the Ottoman governor Amazia attacked Trebizond, and although he was defeated, took many prisoners and ended up extracting a heavy tribute from the state. After John IV's death in 1459, his brother David would come to power and intrigued with various European powers for help against the Ottomans. Speaking of wild schemes that included the conquests of Jerusalem, Mehmed II eventually heard of these intrigues and was further provoked to action by David's demand that Mehmed remit the tribute imposed on his brother. Mehmed's response came in the summer of 1461, where he led a sizable army from Bursa and the Ottoman navy from Sinop, joining forces of Ismail's brother, Ahmed, he captured Sinop and ended the official reign of the John Dardari dynasty, although he appointed Ahmed as the governor of Kastamanu and Sinop, only to revoke the appointment that same year. Various other members of the dynasty were offered important functions throughout the history of the Ottoman Empire. During the march to Trebizond, Uzan Hassan sent his mother Sadak Khatun as an ambassador. While they were climbing the steep heights of Zigana on foot, she asked Sultan Mehmed why he was undergoing such hardship for the sake of Trebizond, upon which Mehmed would reply, Mother, in my hand is the sword of Islam. Without this hardship, I should not deserve the name of Ghazi, and today and tomorrow I shall have to cover my face in shame before Allah. This is once again representative of Mehmed II's strong faith in Islam and his really sight and goal to unite Islamic regions of the world underneath his rule and spread Islam through conquest. After dealing with Trebizond, and actually around the same time as this was happening as well, the Ottomans were attempting to force Wallachia, a state to the north and the Balkans, to be 
a vassal state, essentially, of the, of the Ottoman Empire, which has been happening since about the 15th century. But Wallachia was really a power struggle between the Hungarians, who tried to support their own candidate, the Moldovians, who also did the same, and the Ottomans, who were also doing the same. So the two primary Balkan powers at the time, Hungary and the Ottomans, maintained an enduring struggle to make Wallachia their own vessel. To prevent Wallachia from falling into the o- Hungarian hands, the Ottomans freed Vlad III, also known as Vlad the Impaler, who would actually has been spending about four years as a prisoner of Murad, so that Vlad could claim the throne in Wallachia. His rule was short-lived, however, as Hunyadi invaded Wallachia and restored his ally, Vladislav II, to the throne. Vlad III Dracula would flee to Moldova, where he would live under the protection of his uncle Bogdan II. In 1451, Bogdan was assassinated and Vlad would flee to Hungary. Impressed by Vlad's vast knowledge of the mindset and inner workings of the Ottoman Empire, since he had spent much time there and consulted with the with the sultan quite frequently, Hanyadi reconciled with his former enemy and tried to make Vlad III his own advisor, only for Vlad to come to refuse. Three years after the Ottomans had conquered Constantinople, they threatened Hungary by besieging Belgrade, as I mentioned earlier. This is when Hanyadi began a concentrated counterattack in Serbia. While he himself moved in the Serbia and relieved the siege, Vlad III led his own contingent into Wallachia, reconquering his native lands and killing the imposter Vladislav II. If you're not reading and learning history, then you're doomed to repeat it. For all of you just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos. Upon reconquering Wallachia, Vlad Vlad III kind of reigned a guerrilla war with the Ottomans going back and forth for a number of years. And this is really where he earned his reputation as Vlad the Impaler, as many Ottoman armies would come by into Wallachian territory and see the heads of former Ottoman officers and emissaries being sticked onto pikes. However, Vlad's rule would not last forever, and eventually the Ottomans would capture the Wallachian capital and force them out, where upon fleeing to Hungary, he would be imprisoned on the false accusation of treason by Matthias Corvinus, the king of Hungary. And as you're probably sick of hearing right now, after his previous conquest, Member II once again went on the conquer. In 1463, taking over Bosnia, where in, 14, in that same year, he would also start a war with the Venetians. According to the Byzantine historian Michael Kritobulis, the story, hostilities between the two factions broke out after an Albanian slave of the Ottoman commander of Athens fled to the Venetian fortress of Koroni with 100,000 silver aspers from its master's treasure. The fugitive then would convert to Christianity, so Ottomans' demand for his rendition were refused by Venetian authorities. Using this as a pretext in November of 1462, the Ottoman commander in central Greece attacked and nearly succeeded in taking the strategically important Venetian fortress of Lepanto. To counter the Ottomans at this time, the Hungarians also would ally with the Venetians to launch a two-pronged offensive against the Ottomans. A Venetian army under the captain-general of the sea, Alvis Loredan, landed in Morea, while Matthias Corvinus invaded Bosnia. At the same time, Pope Pius II began assembling an army in Ancona, hoping to lead it in person against the Ottoman forces. However, in early August, the Venetians would retake Argos and refortify the Isthmus of Corinth, much to the dismay of the Ottomans, restoring the Hexamillion Wall and equipping it with many cannon. They then proceeded to besiege the fortress of Arco Cornith, which controlled the northwest Peloponnese. Venetians engaged as well in repeated clashes with the defenders and with Omer Bey's forces until they suffered a major defeat on the 20th of October and were then forced to lift the siege and retreat to the Hexamillion Wall. In Bosnia, Corvinus would come to seize over 60 fortified places and succeed in taking the 
its capital, Jatse, after a three-month siege on the 16th of December of that year. The Ottoman reaction, however, to this initial advance was swift and decisive. Mehmed II would dispatch his Grand Vizier, Mehmed Pasha Anglovic, with an army against the Venetians to confront the Venetian fleet, which had taken station outside the entrance of the Straits. The Sultan further ordered the creation of a new shipyard in Kadriga Limani in the Golden Horn. The Mauryan campaign was swiftly victorious for the Ottomans, who then raised the Hexamillion, advanced into Maria, causing the fall of Argos and several forts and localities that had recognized Venetian authority and reverted it to the Ottomans after these stunning defeats. Sultan Mehmed II, who was following Mahmud Pasha with another army to reinforce him, who had reached uh, the region of Greece at this time, had heard about the success of the Grand Vizier and immediately turned his men north towards Bosnia. However, the Sultan's attempt to retake the places that Corvinus of Hungary had taken from him were largely a failure, and a new army under Mahmud Pasha was then assembled, which would then force Corvinus to finally withdraw. But the capital city of Jats was not retaken for many years to come. By the death of Pope Pius II, who, as I mentioned earlier, had been assembling an army in Ancona on the 15th of August, spelled the end of the crusade, meaning that the Ottomans ultimately only had to deal with the Hungarians and Venetian forces. From here on, the Hungarians, the Venetians, and the Ottomans would kind of go back and forth in the Balkan front without really any significant change. Outside of these two theaters, though, in Greece and in uh, Bosnia, you saw another kind large theater in Albania, where the Albanian leader Skanderbeg led a fierce resistance of really guerrilla warfare, in a way, against the Ottoman forces. However, as we've mentioned in our previous episode, eventually Skanderbeg would succumb to disease, and upon his death, efforts in Albania would largely collapse, and it would come to be annexed by the Ottoman Empire. Mehmed II, once again, for probably the fifth time I've said so far this show, went on to conquer. But, but I'm just going to give a basic summary of century, because these were more minor wars compared to what he's been previously been fighting. In uh, 1466 to 1478, as I mentioned, was the Skanderbeg Rebellion and the conquest of Albania. From 1475 to 1476, you had Ottoman efforts to subject the state of Moldova by Stefan III. One of the three leaders alongside John Hanyadi, Vlad, uh, Vlad Dracula of Wallachia, and Skanderbeg, who really offered fierce resistance to Mehmed's moves. You also had the conquest of Gianese Crimea, and also the subjugation of the Crimean Khanate in 1475, also alongside a short-lived expedition to Italy in 1480. But Mehmed II didn't only conquer things. He's known for just more than that. He's also known for repopulating Constantinople, starting new universities, uh, promoting the arts and sciences and culture of the empire, and really bringing the Ottoman Empire to become a really prestigious and powerful nation, not just militarily, but also economically, culturally, and scientifically. So Mehmed's main concern with Constantinople upon conquering it was rebuilding the city's defenses and the repopulation of the city. As I mentioned in the first episode of History Shouldn't Be Mystery, the city had been depopulated by plague and definitely the recent siege on Constantinople itself. Building projects were immediately commenced after the conquest. That included the repairing of the walls, the construction of a new citadel, the building of a new palace, and to encourage the return of the Greeks and genies who had fled from Galata, the trading quarter of the city, he returned their houses and provided them with guarantees of safety. Mehmed would issue orders across his empire that Muslims, Christians, and Jews should resettle in the city, demanding that 5,000 households needed to be transferred to Constantinople by September. From all over the Islamic empire, prisoners of war and deported people were sent to the city. These people would be called the Sagrun in Turkish, meaning immigrants. 
Mehmed restored the ecumenical Orthodox patriarchy in the 6th of January, 1454, and established a Jewish grand rabbinate and the prestigious Armenian Patriarch of Constantinople in the capital as part of the Milet system. In institutions and commercial installations in the main districts of Constantinople, such as the Rum Mehmed Pasha Mosque, built by the Grand Vizier Rum Mehmed Pasha, from these nuclei, the metropolis developed rapidly, and according to a survey carried out in 1478, there were then in Constantinople and the neighboring Galata 16,324 households, 3,927 shops, and an estimated population of 80,000. And, and after about 50 years or so, Constantinople would come to be the largest city in Europe, thanks to Mehmed's effort. But as I previously mentioned, Mehmed didn't only you know, sponsor educational institutions, promote culture and the repopulation of Constantinople. He also centralized the imperial government. So remember the conqueror consolidated power by building his imperial court, the Divan, with officials who would be solely loyal to him and allow for greater autonomy and authority. Under previous sultans, the Divan had been filled with members of aristocratic families that sometimes had other interests and loyalties from that of the sultan, which made governing a bit more difficult. Mehmed, however, would transition the empire away from this Ghazi mentality that emphasizes ancient traditions and ceremonies in governance and move towards a centralized bureaucracy largely made of officials of a Devsirme background. Additionally, Mehmed the Conqueror took the step of converting the religious scholars who were part of the Ottoman madrasas into salary employees of the Ottoman bureaucracy who were loyal to him. This centralization was possible and formalized through the Kanuname, issued from 1477 to 1481, which for the first time listed the chief officials in the Ottoman government, their roles and responsibilities, salaries, protocol punishments, as well as as how they were related to one another and the sultan. Through this creation of an Ottoman bureaucracy, he was able to transform the empire from what was really described as more of a frontier society, as it was so autonomous, to a really centralized government and really made the Ottoman Empire one of the first autocratic and centralized states in Europe, but also allowed him to have some of the, one of the most powerful states as he was able to easily make decisions, and especially considering that many of the early Ottoman sultans had were incredibly good with governance. This was incredibly useful. However, eventually disastrous when less competent sultans would come to the throne. But as is with the reign of every, any king or sultan, it would not last forever. Mehmed II would come to die on the 3rd of May, 1481, at the age of 49, being succeeded by then Bayezid II. Mehmed II conquered and really established most of the Ottoman Empire and that we really know of going into the 15th, 16th centuries and really set the stage for its ascendancy to really becoming the most powerful nation in not just the Middle East, but also Eastern Europe at the time. Thus concludes the reign of Mehmed II. Thank you everyone for joining us on yet another week of history shouldn't be a mystery. Tune in next time as we delve into even more historical figures from our past. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss, so be sure to join us same time, same place, next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.